Welcome to the show, everyone. We have a very special guest for you today. He is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu coral belt, a legend and pioneer of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and he's a martial arts Hall of Famer. Welcome to the show, the legendary Carlos Machado. Hello, sir. How are you doing, my friend? Great to be at your show. Thank you. Oh, absolute pleasure. Been a big fan of your work for a long, long time. And man, just talk about a lifetime of putting an imprint on the world culture with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as a whole. Now, for those people that may not know about background and things like that for you, what were some of your earliest memories like starting Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? All right. So uh, I give you like some bullet points. All right. Mm -hmm. Starting age, four years old. First tournament, age of five. I was a runner-up. I got a silver medal. I was training under Carlson Gracie originally. Uh, Helio Gracie was the one I did my first intro class. Uh, uh, so, but Carlson Gracie was my first instructor as a kid. Eventually, I trained with Halls Gracie, uh, the late champion. Uh, they both shared the same building. You probably have some history on it. Mm -hmm. It was kind of interesting experience. And I'm first degree cousin to Carlos Gracie Sr.'s sons from his last marriage with my aunt, Lair Gracie, who was sister to my mom, who's still living in Rocky in 92. So I'm the oldest of the Machado brothers. We are five, as you may know, you know, Carlos, Roger, Regan, Jean-Jacques, and John. And we've been in the U.S. since uh, April 1st, believe it or not, of uh, 1990. Wow. I uh, was in Brazil until uh, right before then. And I was successful in tournaments out there. You have to understand that the scope of BJJ at that time, tournaments, Rio de Janeiro was the, the hub of jiu-jitsu, literally in the world. I mean, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu per se. And we had quite a few tournaments there that were actually on a national level or world level, but they were just happening in Rio. And wow. we came to the U.S. in 1990. I followed my brother Higgins' footsteps. I was in L.A. for five years. Uh, became the main instructor of the great Chuck Norris. Yes. And Chuck Norris made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Come to Dallas. I'll beat you up on the screen. And I'm going to pay you more than if you fight in the UFC. I said, what? I'm ready for it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, October 95, after five years in L.A. running a couple of schools with my brothers, I came and opened my academy inside the TV studio of Chuck Norris. So they call me the godfather of jiu-jitsu in Texas uh, or in the Southwest because I think from that point up to a long while, I was the highest ranked instructor in the area. And most martial artists from different backgrounds, they were already kind of putting their foot in the water in jiu-jitsu, became my students. So I have quite an extensive lineage. Even if I don't have a direct student who is instructor in this area, they're a student of a student of a student of mine. You know? Wow. So, <laughs> oh, Great-grandfather, I guess, by now. <laughs> uh, so I was very close to Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris is very instrumental to the development of BJJ in America, in my opinion. He was the first one to bring uh, my cousin, Horian Gracie, in 1988, they gave lectures and seminars to Chuck Norris' organization, which had a 1,000-plus strong group of black belts within the convention room. So it was pretty cool for me, oh. coming fresh from Brazil. I was a guest at that time, was not living in the U.S. then, to have that kind of experience. Coming to America was a twist of fate. My brother Higgin came first. Yeah, about two years before you, something like that. Yeah, before the first Gracie Academy in Torrance was to be opened. The whole plan was everybody working under one roof at the Gracie Academy with Horian. But you can't put so many chefs in the kitchen. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, it's doomed to burn. 
So a few months after we arrived, we realized, you know, this is not the fit for us. And our relationship with Chuck Norris was instrumental because he is the one that provided us the opportunity to open our first academy yes. in California in one of the malls that he co-owned with a good late friend of ours, Bob Wall. Yeah, I mean, it's an absolutely amazing story in general. Me with Chuck Norris, the story is he went up to his strip mall and was like, hey, what do you think of this place? There you go. It's your place to go. So the start of the Machados, Chuck Norris was responsible for two things. He came to our house as a guest to do a private session in our garage dojo. We didn't have an academy, but at that time we had quite a few privates. Literally 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. We had privates going in and out. And I would say two group sessions a week. Now, those guys, bear with me, mostly refer from Hori and Gracie's pool because they were all being groomed to become students at the soon-to-be-inaugurated Gracie Academy. But Chuck Norris had a common friend, Richard Norton, who was doing some acting gigs with him at that time. And Richard has always been uh, very open-minded about martial arts, extremely talented karate and kickboxer. Richard Norton, amazing skills, a dear friend of ours. So Richard was mentioning to Chuck, Chuck, I'm training with these guys, the Machados, you know, and why don't you give it a try? Because Chuck was kind of like fed up a little bit with oh. the politics even then, you know. And I guess one day he came to our house. We had a three-bedroom rental in Redondo Beach. And here we are like little kids sitting on the couch in this humble, you know, crib looking at Chuck Norris right there. Wow. And then lo and behold, he was himself, even back then, a true person, you know, not with the celeb vibe, you know, no arrogance or anything down to earth. Had first session with my brother Hegan. Hegan went to his house a few times and then sooner than later he said, you know what, I'm going to get you guys a school and we're going to help you out. So wow. we had, a, you know, no rent for a few months and then he did the build out. So that was right there, the first critical part, right? We got through something big. The second part was when he was part of a demonstration that we did, that we had a student of ours that called the LA Times. And you have to understand, back in those days, there was no internet. Everything was on paper. Newspaper was really what everybody read. So on the sports section of the LA Times in the Valley, which had almost 2 million people just on that part of LA living out there, we are full page on the back. Chuck Norris, uh, my picture in Chuck Norris was half a page. And he had the title, Ambassadors of the Gentle Art. Now, you have to understand one quick detail. Our first academy was named after my uncle. My uncle had a document he gave us, a letter giving us authorization to use the name Carlos Gracie for us to open our first school. We always had the intent to represent the family we were brought up with and learned from. And then, you know, there was some difference of opinions with our cousin Horian in regards to how to make use of the name. You probably know a lot of stories about it. But the critical point was after that demo, we had literally in a month, we had 200 students joining our for any For any standards, that's a good enrollment rate. The enrollment (laughs) people in a month, even nowadays, it's it's a feat, right? So, but the problem was, you know, it created some issues with Horry because a lot of people was calling his academy to ask for us. Oh. You know, and at that time we had already decided that we wouldn't work with Horian, right? We, we all parted ways amicably, although not agreeably. <laughs> and and then Horian said, "You know what? You're not going to use the name then. Either you pay us to use the name, or you don't pay." And then we said, "You know, we're going to just make sure that 
who do this right. If using the name means I'm going to be looked at as taking advantage of you, uh, we'll just go down. And that's when the Machado name was born. Wow. It was born out of our initiative. It was the circumstance that made us go through that route. But we never deny our roots. And we're in good terms with most of the family, if not all. You know, I don't have an issue with anybody. That's absolutely amazing. And Carlos, I want to ask you too, because I mean, you've been doing this a whole lifetime and you've seen it start, you know, back in the garage days, as you're mentioning, all the way to like multiple schools, thousands of students under that lineage. What has that perspective been like, the journey of the growth of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Okay. So if you look at the decades past, you know, before even BJJ came, you had the karate age. The Taekwondo age, they still run strong. You have as many, if not more, karate dojos and Taekwondo dojos than you have BJJ. BJJ has gained the notoriety and the popularity because with the MMA, the UFC, and being mainstream, the Gracie family coming to America, you know, us coming in, it kind of disseminated an art that a lot of those who are already established in their own systems caught up with it. Okay. And that's why I think one of the main reasons. Jiu-Jitsu has exponentially grown is not just because Jiu-Jitsu became popular with the MMA and everything else. It's mm. because he awakened the fact to the traditional martial arts that there was something of value that they had the choice to add on to their yes. resume. You know, my association has hundreds of schools and the vast majority are karate-based, taekwondo-based. And, I mean, there's a handful of full-fledged Jiu-Jitsu schools as well. But the point I'm trying to make is they already had established system that was effective in running the business aspect of it and the marketing. So when Jiu-Jitsu got caught into the swing of things and implemented with the structure that they already had in place, then you see that spreading out everywhere. You know what I'm saying? Now, IBJJF and tournaments, ADCC, all those things popularize the competitive aspect of it. But you got to understand, the real business in martial arts is family. Let's say if you pick a number, 100, you have a fraction of those who really want to be competitors. The majority, yeah, you know, they just want the lifestyle, the hobby, and everything else. doesn't mean that with the master's division now, you don't have the older guys, you know, venturing into it and this and that, which I think is great. But a lot of people want to do jujitsu for the other benefits, you know, not oh, yeah. competition alone. So there's a duality of it, you know, and I feel circumstances have favored jiu-jitsu dramatically because not only initially my cousins and us, but a mass exodus of uh, quality instructors migrated from Brazil to the United States. The United States definitely became somewhat of the, the platform mm. where jiu-jitsu really went everywhere. If everybody stayed in Brazil... I don't know how long you have taken for things to take off or if you would ever take off to the degree that he did now. Yeah, you're right. There was just so much cross-pollination around that period of time. And that's an interesting insight on the grassroots of everything going out. And that was another interesting point you made there too. You know, so a lot of people listening also train. Some people I've met over the years, competition is really good to do. It's very healthy to do. But some people feel like they're not really practicing any martial art, let alone Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, unless they're competing. But I've seen it work multiple different routes. You kind of go into the different concepts as people approach their training for their own personal journey. Yeah, okay. So competence, that's what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. You want to be competent. Whether you compete or not, you want to know that 
you have the knowledge and you're capable of applying the knowledge. All right. So competition becomes just a choice, which I'm not against. I think is a great aspect that motivates a lot of people and helps popularize. But my thing here is if I can just accomplish this, make the average above average, for me, I fulfill my goal. You see what I'm saying? If oh, I, I love take that. an average Joe and make him above the average, meaning whatever skills I can help him build, making him consider competent no matter where he is, that for me fits the bill. The second part is longevity. All right. Mm -hmm. So you got to understand that the way people train and when you have competition, there's a degree of intensity. So it's not uncommon that you're going to have a high degree of injuries. And listen, if you're going to get competent, you're going to have to step in deep waters. You know, you're going to have yeah. to be tested. But when you're doing a competitive schedule, going against other equal or more competent opponents, the grueling of being the lifestyle is not for everybody. You know what I'm saying? If you want to be like a world class, but whatever system you use, if you're consistent and the instructorship give you the mentorship for you to not just get the fish, but throw the hook. Because nowadays you can be by yourself in the garage, watching some instructional from BJJ Fanatics, yeah. and having a good training partners. You can go a long stride just with that alone. So there's a lot of resources. Instructors, they have to give you guidance, you know, just Kind of make it happen in a certain way. Don't try to be a Frankenstein. Of yeah. <laughs> try to be a mixture of uh, everybody else. Find your DNA. Mm. You know, find what favors you more, your body type, what favors you more, your nature, you know, and this and that. And then start to kind of mold things and then create the snowball approach. Because the best approach is slow and steady, not mm. fast and furious. See what I'm saying? Oh, I love if you're that. Gonna really get above the average or even be a champion is the steadiness and the slow, gradual, incremental progress that's going to solidify and integrate your knowledge in a way that you can replicate through time. Okay. I have a saying about sound mechanics, which I'm going to throw that in a bit, which kind of yeah. gives the analogy of what I'm talking about here. So when you put sound, you associate with waves. So let's say something that makes a boom today echoes in the future, okay? So let's say this is the analogy here, right? So let's say 20 years ago, you went for a seminar and I taught you a sweep with a little tweak. And then mm -hmm. 20 years later, I meet you and you tell me, hey, uh, Carlos, do you remember that sweep that you taught me 20 years ago? Because you're still doing it and it's still working. And you come to me and say, uh, maybe help me out. Oh no, this trip like this. Oh, okay, I got it. Man, guess what? I still use it and still works. Right? Yes. So this for me gives you the understanding of what I mean by sound mechanics. Mm. It crosses the barrier of time. Okay. Wow. Now, this you can only accomplish if you have strong fundamentals, which is the foundation of everything. Mm. Okay. But it doesn't mean that you cannot evolve and add all the repertoire of amazing skills, of all this massive pool of talent of accomplished students, competitors, fighters, instructors, they are plentiful today that can give you, you know, an endless source of information for you to take advantage of. So you got to pass the test of time, you know, and I yeah. experimented with that because yeah. I'm intrigued about not just skill building, 
I'm intrigued about accelerated learning. Mm. Hey, you know, what are you watching The Matrix and you have a chip that you can put in your brain and now you are the Gordon yeah. Ryan of uh, jiu-jitsu. You know what I'm saying? You learn all the tricks. Elon Musk already mentioned that they're working on it. You know, you see it. Oh, yeah. That you never discount what the future holds. Maybe Terminator won't be a science fiction anymore, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in the sense of, I guess, knowledge-based and integration of knowledge, studying how the mechanics of the technique develop, you can kind of shortcut, one, how fast you learn and you're able to execute, and second, overcome people's handicaps on their learning capacity. Because not everybody learns at the same pace. You have How many guys you have, if you have a random group of students, this guy get it. And the other guy, you always have one in the class that no matter what you do, like, yeah. oh, my goodness, how am I going to make this person learn? He does everything wrong all the time. What people don't understand is their nervous system is trying to figure things out. So mm. if I teach and you make mistakes, if you don't hurt yourself or your partner, I'll let you do wrong 100 times, 200 times, 1,000 times. Because what you're doing, you're awakening your nervous system. Oh, and wow. all of a sudden, on the 101st attempt, it clicks. And all of a sudden, you're doing as well, if not better, than the other guy that was the gifted guy that got it from the first time. It is crazy, crazy. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Because, yeah, because a lot of people get into subjects of uh, like plateauing or just not being able to progress. And also, there's another stream of students that they just don't go in often enough. It sounds like it's the mat time and going over and over. And at one day, right, it just clicks. Yeah, I mean, mat time is important, but making it count. You know what I'm saying? Your focus has to be, well, what's your main goal? What's your main goal? You just want to roll and get the endorphins? Which I think is good, too. You know, because you're going to develop muscle memory and awareness. There's a saying in jiu-jitsu, the mat rats, thick-skinned yeah. guys. They've been exposed so often to the mat. They roll so much that they start to map out everybody's moves. And they learn by osmosis, even if nobody gives them instruction. They absorb what's happening to them. They feel what's happening. And then they start actually replicating whatever happens to them. You know, jujitsu, you learn by feeling. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I can yeah. give an explanation academically, you know, impeccable. And you're going to look at me and like, what the heck is he talking about? Or maybe you understand what I'm saying, but your body won't follow. But if I say something for you, for instance, all right, man, pretend you are in a stance like a surfer. You're on a board, you have a big wave, you're going to get into the tube. So that's a good stance for guard pass. So if I give you an image, and then you feel, man, I'm on a board. So what's your goal when you're passing a guard? It's not to freaking pass the guard. Your goal is first not to get swept and not to get tapped. You know what I'm saying? Once you get those two out of the way, let's talk about guard pass, if that works. You know what I'm saying? But then people worry about the technique. You know, people always say position before submission. I say stance before technique. You know what I'm saying? Because otherwise, what you're doing is deadlift. Hmm. You know, dressing the guard with bad stance, bad posture, you're actually trying to carry the guy instead of trying to have your pressure on that person. Going to the mat all the time is going to give you an edge. You're going to develop. By having strategic training, tactical training is going to catapult. You know what I'm saying? Because this is one thing. You can have a guy who is savvy and thick, 
uh, skinned in regards to the amount of time he spends on the mat. But without direction, focus, and being tactical and strategic on how he builds his or her skills. And then you have another guy that doesn't go as often, but he's strategic and tactical about his skills. The guy that has the tactics and the strategy is going to beat the crap out of the other guy, no matter what. Yeah. Because it's kind of like you have the sunlight. It shine on everybody. But the guy who's focused, strategic, and methodical in his skill building, he's going to make every minute count. He's not just sweating. He's building his skills. He's working through his problems. It's like you have a magnifying glass. You're going to burn something. You know, you're going to yeah. narrow down all the rays into a focus point, and that's going to make you sharper. And that's a great takeaway for everybody to focus on with their training is when they're on the mat, focusing on that. Some people are worried about sparring, about losing or getting submitted. It's best to really hunker down and hone in on the technicality side of things. You know, that's the thing that we are plagued with on perception. Mm. Uh, and that's ignorance above all, equaling tapping to doing bad, you know, or feeling bad about getting tapped because you feel, oh, if I get tapped, that means I'm no good. They kind of like, oh, the guy defeated me and this and that. In a training environment, tapping, if you really, really understand the nature of it, it's the best thing that can happen to somebody to get tapped. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. one, you realize you don't know it all. You have yet a lot to learn. And second, I'll give an example. I get tapped. The first thing I do, if I don't stop the training right away to figure that out, as soon as the train is over, hey, man, please step me out again in that same position. Let's do it again. I'll put myself in that very position that the guy got me. And I swear, I'm going to be sweating my brain and my muscles trying to figure out what can I do to slow down. First, you don't try to stop it. Slow down the process. And then what portion of the tapping I can interfere. Because you have things like in boxing, for instance, you get punched in the chin. You're going to get knocked out before you can counter that punch. So you're going to have to put your defense up front. You're going to have to figure out what was the move that person did. And you're going to try to anticipate that. In jiu-jitsu, it works the same way. Okay? So i got to see the before, the during, and the after. Because three is the magic number in jiu-jitsu. You have the setup. You have the transition. You have the completion. You know what I'm saying? You have three. you got to be able to stop the guy in one of those three. And that's your only goal. When you have DBI tournaments where people do the tiebreakers, they start already kind of half submitted. You know, the guy start on my back with the seat belt, or the guy start already with the armbar. You're working on the last part. The guy already passed the setup in the transition. He's into the submission phase. So, you know, and of course, there are approaches for that as well that you can use to avert. But the further you go into the process, the less likely you are to escape unharmed. You know, if, if I want yes, to yes. escape after my arm is extended, I might have a hyperextension, even if I do. When I saw Gordon Ryan fighting Craig Jones. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, first time on the tiebreaker, he has his arm fully extended. So there was a degree of technique and grit. And I don't know how bad his arm was sore after the, but it did look like, you know, it was, it was, <sighs> it was right there, right? But the thing that people get frustrated, they want to find solutions right away. It's like a pill. You know, people are used to convenience. I have a headache. I take a pill. If you drink water with electrolytes, you probably your headache will be gone yeah. and you probably won't have another one. You know, because dehydration <laughs> is one of the main causes of headaches. You don't have any disease or stuff, you know. But anyhow, going back to 
I look at doors. You have to close at least one door. Whether it's the setup, I'm not going to be in the position for you to start. Remember when Roger Grace was asked on an interview, man, you don't know any of these fancy guards, you know, the rubber yeah. guard, the De La Riva guard, the spider guard, whatever it is. But nobody sweeps you on that. So, man, I don't have to know any of those guards. I just don't put myself in a position for them to work. You wow. see what I'm saying? Yeah. So you kind of like kill the shot before even the shot was fired. You see what I'm saying? Oh, that's a beautiful thing. So, yeah. So that's far reaching. That's that's the way you think. Now, don't get me wrong. You got to study. You got to know what your opponent does if you're going to go against somebody. You know, nowadays with the advantage of having video for everything, floor grappling shows all the matches of any of you are likely, if you're up there on that level, the likely opponents you're going to have. You guys do your training camps and you kind of, you know, I'm going to not fall for this. I'm going to set the guy up for that and this and that. And then it becomes a game. But in regards to the tapping, just going back to it, mm -hmm. it's lack of culture. You know, mm -hmm. because if you're in a culture of building skills, what's more important for you is growth. So tapping is a necessary aspect of growth. You want to get tapped. If you don't get tapped enough, something's not right. Either you're not exposing yourself enough, and that's the danger with it. Mm. I remember one time my brother Higgin was in Brazil. There was a, a world champ at that time that hadn't tapped for three and a half years. And this was right at the time when Eddie Bravo came with the twister game, you know, and everybody oh, okay. in the twister. And in Brazil at that time, it was kind of like still a new thing. Man, Higgin was an expert on that, you know. The thing is, Higgin and Eddie Bravo was like a 50-pound a difference. So it was a, a real pressure twister, to say the least. Yeah. Well, he trained with the guy and got the guy three or five times on the twister. It was right before a world championship. And the guy said, you know what? I don't want to compete anymore. He was guys were so distraught because he had been so long since he had been wow. tapped. Wow. And he felt like he fell off his mental game. Wow. So you got to be grounded. Yeah, it's a very important mental side of the training. It's not just blindly show up. You got to be cognizant and present. And you know, like you said, focus on some work on growth. Yeah. So for me, I'll give you an example here. Okay. My brother Jean-Jacques had the best description of what he wants when he competes against somebody. Hmm. You know what he said? What? He didn't say he wanted to win or beat the crap out of the guy. He didn't say any of this. He said, I just want to make sure that after the match is done, that guy never wants to face me again. Man. This wow. say, who cares if I lost? That guy is like, man, I don't want to go another round with this guy. So that's real core thought. Because in the end of the day, everybody wants to win. But what you really want is to get the most of every experience you got, regardless of results. And make it the culture at your gym. Not to give a crap about tapping, but just... Let's see how much I can make this guy work before he ever gets me. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu, what's the definition of jiu-jitsu, man? It's not leverage. It's not gentle art. You have all these definitions. The core is energy. You spend less, your partner spends more. I remember one time, you know, I was rolling with one of my black belts. This was several years ago. I was going really hard, training every day. I still train, but at that time, I wouldn't consider training if I didn't line up everybody who was on my dojo, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I remember this guy was on top of me for a while, you know, and this and that. And then at the end, he said, man, you know, I was on top of Carlos and I was trying to hold him down and this and that, but I was working harder than him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was more tired than what he was. 
you know, so therefore you give perspective. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So for me, I don't care if I'm in a bad position. If I'm going against you and you're spending more energy than me, I'm cool. For me, that's a good approach or definition of the essence of jujitsu, if nothing else. I absolutely love that. One of my favorite things you said years ago was if you're doing like a five minute sparring round, 99% of that round, you're talking about with the energy, like you're draining him. If you're on top, he's carrying your weight. Then only 1% of that round go for the submission. Yeah, I mean, the submission can be the ice on the cake. There's an interesting perspective on submission, okay? I remember, like, for instance, when I came to Dallas and in the beginning when I was in L.A., the way we were brought up in regards to proving jiu-jitsu or giving, let's say, an introduction to jiu-jitsu is we'll go around with you. You do whatever you want. We'll do whatever we want. You'll try to tap as many times as we can in that round. Then we, I go against all these well-conditioned Division One wrestlers that can really go for a stretch. And I'm tapping the guy out once. And then I tap the guy out again and this and that. All the guy has to do is tap out and then he's ready to start again. You're, you're helping, I, yeah. I'm, like, I'm like spending my energy, you know, and really keeping the pressure and going at a pace much faster than what I would have compared to what I did afterwards, which was I would try to wear the guy out for nine minutes. And on the 10th minute mark, I'll go for a tap out. Almost like it was a mercy killing. The guy was almost begging, please tap me out. So that approach right there, when they tapped, they didn't want to go another round because they had nothing left on them. Okay? So that became strategically, for me, beneficial because I realized, you know how many times you tap the guy out? is how helpless you make the guy feel throughout the entire process. And then you do the tapping as the ice on the cake. See what I'm saying? So that was a learning experience for me because nobody's superhuman. I absolutely love that amazing, true approach to training and going into some of your earlier competition. I mean, you had like 10 years straight on this national level. You retired winning worlds in 2000. There was one 80 CC story I wanted you to go into because we love stories here. You had a broken foot. You want to go into that one? Man, uh, I, I was so excited. I was selected to go to ADCC 2000. My brother, Jean-Jacques, had competed the year prior. I guess he had won. In 99, was in 2000, I guess. So, man, first day in Los Angeles, I go to train with my brother, and I'm in his guard, and I, my foot was pointed out. Mm-hmm. And he went from one of those hip thrusts, that upper from the guard, and literally I rolled over my foot. Ooh. And it popped really hard. And I knew if I went to the ER or to the hospital, they would have put a cast. You know what I'm saying? Oh. So, yeah. And that means I wouldn't be able to go. So I wrapped up. Every time I trained, I wrapped up really well to hold it. And man, it's funny because I would walk and you could hear every time I stepped, there was a bunch of pops. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? So one of the things was like I felt, I mean, I was self-conscious about it. I felt like if somebody shot on the leg that I had, the broken foot, I would have to give. I couldn't firm my foot on the ground or even try a sprawl. So I had a couple of matches, beat this guy from Russia with a triangle. Luckily, he did an ankle pick on me, so I wasn't the guard. I tried to go for an armbar. Eventually, I triangle him. And then I had a second match with Marsha Feitaza, which I have the utmost respect. And we went overtime. We was going back and forth. And I think I lost by a technical guard pull. You know, like when you're mm-hmm. past the 10 minutes to pull guard, you have a minus one. So something like that, mm-hmm. you know. But I couldn't 
not taking any merit for him, but I did what I could with what I got, you know, so it was all good, you know, good experience. Said, man, if I can do this, uh, go up to this far with a broken foot, who knows if my foot was not broken, maybe I would have done yeah. that, right? <laughs> so it was a, whatever, it was a good experience. And also, you know, mindset, even in competition point, I mean, the average guy would broken his foot right there. It's like, you know, I don't want long-term damage. I got a wife, a family, a work, a career, but the mindset, I think some people, they're so used to the common everyday life. They don't really get that switch. Like, why would you still go into competition, not go to the uh, doctor's office? Yeah. Let's put it this way though. Yeah. Just today, I would definitely have gone to the doctor. First. Okay. <laughs> even, even if I get I me, mean, it was... When you're young, I'm not saying it was dumb, but it was definitely negligence on my part. Luckily, I didn't need surgery or it didn't make too much worse than what it was. <laughs> but, but there's something wired in you. You have to understand too, like not just in martial arts or MMA yeah. or even self-defense, there's a very real reality yeah. where you could be hurt, crippled, die. That's all there. And But the okay. more you train, the more you train, right. the bigger cushion you have, right? So that brings me to memory, something I did practice myself since I was a blue belt, the one minute rule. Okay. Mm. So what happens is back in Brazil in the old days, when I was training at Hall's Academy, I was 16, just in my mid-teens, training at the adults. So everybody was stronger than me, bigger than me, higher ranked than me. The dimensions of the training area was small. There was no AC, you know, so it was just suffocating muggy everything else and it was just like grueling from beginning to end and i remember how many times i felt like i just want to quit because i had a guy on top of me i could barely breathe the hot where everybody training at the same time so like florida and texas where they mixed up together that's really okay. this <laughs> so i looked at the clock randomly there was a clock on the wall and i was literally on, about to just quit you know the guy didn't get me anything i just couldn't put anything anymore. As you know what, I'm going to just kind of keep my eye on that clock and go for a minute. And just, so I was just dying, but I procrastinated my death. You know, I say, I'm going to stay in this misery for another minute. And once that minute passes, you know what, let me see if I can try another minute. And I swear to God, I was able to stretch for almost 10 minutes before the match was over or before I told the guy, okay, I'm done. You know, so wow. what he taught me was, Really, when you feel like quitting, you still have several minutes that you can go on that you're not aware of. So for me, it served me really well, really well. Yeah, people have so much more in them. And yes, yes, I love that aspect of it. And also earlier on, when you're going to law school, kind of following your father's footsteps, you live with Carlos Gracie for about five years or so. That was a very integral part of your upcoming as well. Is any interesting wisdom or takeaways or just life lessons you had in that time? Okay, so there are three. Okay, so Carlos Gracie, senior, great master. One of the things people don't know, you know, they talked about this about Bruce Lee when he was in San Francisco going to college and everything. And people say, hey, he had the library with 2,000 volumes. But he was a well-read person, a studious a person of many things, not just martial arts alone. So much so that he became somewhat of a philosopher in addition to everything, right? Carlos Gracie had a library with, I think, even more volumes than what Bruce Lee had. He had an attic. His time was spent studying, healing, taking care of himself. 
and spending some time with his family, if any. You know, because his kids are all grown up when oh, I was okay. already living there. So his level of discipline. So he taught me about discipline. He prepared all his meals like a ritual. And he never steered from his diet. Anything that he said he you know, recommended to somebody, he tried on himself first. Mm. That was a lesson I learned from him. And he did that throughout his life with his siblings, with his offsprings, and so on. Second part of him, he was not a religious person, but he was spiritual. Very mm. spiritual. He was not afraid. He was not afraid of anything. Because he didn't believe in death. You know what I'm saying? He didn't mm. believe in death. Now, I'm not saying here that he was doing silly things to risk himself. He, he was not into dangerous activities. When he was young, there are quite a few moments in his life. There was like a do or die kind of situation. It's like a saga. Then you have to research a bit more about his history. But what I grasped from him too was, this was the, one of the greatest lessons that I got from him. A true warrior is compassionate. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because you can defeat your opponent without hating your opponent. You see what I'm wow. saying? Wow. And, and you can lose to an opponent without hating an opponent. He said feelings had nothing to do with it. Any given day, you can have a better man. And that led to his belief of humility. No matter how good you are, you'll never be as good as you can be. It's always a goal. Okay. Yeah. No matter how good you are, there will be a point in time somebody will be there to prove to you that they are above you. You're not going to hold the crown forever. So the sooner you realize that and give respect first before you earn it. And the last thing I heard from him, the last words I heard from his mouth before I came to America. Because afterwards, I didn't interact with phone calls with him, you know, and stuff. And eventually, oh. a few years afterwards, he passed away. But... He said, when you go to America, just remember this. Be humble. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. We already did that for you. You know, wow. and that really molded. So on our first school, the first mm -hmm. thing we did, we painted in big letters on all our academies, leave your ego at the door. You know, that was the first thing. You know, later on, more recently, because I'm also concerned about longevity, I just say, Train smart, stay humble, because you got to take care of your partner and take care of yourself, take care of your body and so on. So, wow. What an amazing takeaway. And that's the other thing I love about you and your brothers is there's no like, hey, I'm the champion now or I'm the one that's ahead. You guys are very much always there for each other and everything you do. And also you had training with one of the all-time greats, Holes Gracie. And I, anybody I've ever talked to who's ever trained with him, it, always like a game changer. He, he was all multi-sambo, wrestling, combining everything. Man, what was he like in person and in training? Holes was the true definition of a warrior. He had the heart biggest than anybody, but he was a lion. You know what <laughs> I guess you can say a lion with a tender heart. He was an intense competitor. I've seen, you know, that happens on occasion in different sports, but he was the only guy until today that I've seen that did a takedown, an eponsioi, and put an armbar while the guy was still in the air. By the time the guy landed on the ground, he had already tapped out. I've never oh. seen that in my life ever since. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but that's kind of like, but now when you talk about what he represented, hmm. he was a point of reference for the entire family. That's what it yeah, sounds like, yes. Yeah. 
he had the respect, the utmost respect from all the clans. He was above discussion at that time. You know, when Hall's name came, he was like above discussion. Everybody was amazed by his personality. He was so likable and so amazing in his martial arts skills. Now, he was also a visionary. For instance, the fact that his mom was a flight attendant, he had passes to go all over the world, and he took full advantage of it. So he would go to San Diego and train wrestling or Greco with Bob Anderson. He would go to Europe, and, you know, he, he was like, he was already a black belt in judo. He was doing boxing. He became very seasoned in wrestling, freestyle wrestling. And with the skills that he already had in jiu-jitsu, he just catapulted the evolution to a dimension that we hadn't seen, you know, in a long while. You know, I still was kind of young to catch up with it. But his life was cut short, of course, for the accident that he had, the hand gliding mm-hmm. accident. And we would talk about, he had an indomitable spirit. Mm-hmm. Halls, anything that he felt that would challenge him, he would go after. So if he was a surfer, he was not happy to surf. He had to surf big waves. Okay. <laughs> he had a motorcycle. He didn't have a like a small little motocross. He had a badass Yamaha that was like with a lot of horsepower and that would go anywhere. You know, and then when he started doing hand gliding, he was just going everywhere, you know, and he had two accidents that he was unharmed until the third and fatal one. Sometimes, you know, we always question why things happen the way they happen. But he was the first one also that I saw saying, okay, I'm going to get everybody in the Kimura. And he lined up all his top students, black belts at that time. And every single one, they all knew what he was going for. He still got them all in the same move. So he was definitely ahead of his time in many ways, you know. For me, I guess his loss, besides the sheer talent that I felt would have contributed so much to the evolution back then, was just the kind of person he was. He was a loss from a relationship aspect. He was a, an amazing guy. We had lunch together every day when I used to live at Carlos Gracie Sr.'s uh, house. He would always show up for lunch. Always. I mean, we had that all of looking at him with the admiration that we had for who he was on and off the mat. But then we had our casual day-by-day with him where he was just himself, you know. It was kind of fun to see him just be himself, you know. Wow, absolutely amazing. Also, you mentioned earlier about when you did make your way towards Texas, Chuck Norris helped establish some things there. But you also were involved in over a dozen episodes, Walker, Texas Ranger. And there's one story in particular, I believe Chuck got a little too strong on one of the stunt chokes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I got choked out twice at that show. Chuck Norris was one of them. And of course, Chuck Norris has always been very cautious, never hurt anybody on the set when you were doing the choreography of the fight scenes, always mindful. He had a good crew of stunt coordinators and everybody. But in this particular episode, they had to do a clip right on my face while I was getting choked out. I was wearing like a collar shirt and he just kind of grabbed my collar. And you know how chokes they usually make you pass out, but not the tight ones. Because the tight ones, you know, it's too obvious you're going to pass out. It's the ones that are kind of tight, but not too tight. Mm. But if you remain there long enough, the blood flow will slow down your brain and then you're going to pass out. And funny, it's like, I felt like, it was tighter than what I wish it was. And then I said, you know what? They want me to pass out anyways. 
<laughs> so I'm going to look good in the camera as long as it doesn't hold too long. Otherwise, I'm going to peel my pants. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of like what happened. And I kind of started doing some yoga breathing. I was able to recover fast. And I did tell Chuck, you choked me out. But he was like, oh, my gosh, I'm sorry. I said, next time, put the pressure on the collarbone. It looks real, but it doesn't hit my neck. So that's the trick for stunt. The other one was with Frank Shamrock. We're having a great time. We had the fight scene in this backyard MMA inside a prison with like a pit of some sort. And same thing. He put the choke on me. He was not trying to choke me, but he kind of hit me where the artery was. And the same thing. The camera was right on me. I said, you know what? I'm going to have to pull another one here. So I kind of revived myself. And then I same thing. I talked to Frank. You just choked me out. He said, oh, man, I'm so sorry. Yeah, next time on the collarbone. <laughs> All these stunt coordinators out there listening to it, if you're going to do a choke scene, tell the guy to put the pressure on the collarbone. It seems exactly like he's choking the, the person, but it doesn't have the, the effects, you know, <laughs> choking the guy out. <laughs> you know what you do for your craft, you know? <laughs> yes, man. I paid, I paid my duties. <laughs> That's great. And what was it like, you know, obviously, doing real life action with jujitsu and martial arts? But going on fight choreography, like what was that kind of transition? Uh, it, like? it was a good experience, but it can be very dangerous too. Mm. You know, doing it with somebody who is not well trained, because I did hurt myself one time. I had to be thrown overhead by one of the co-stars, and the stunt coordinator at that time was going crazy with the fight scenes. It was one of his first, I guess, episodes that he ever worked. So he wanted to kind of prove a point, I guess. The scene was kind of crazy. Imagine somebody grabs me on a fence and throw me overhead onto the ground. Literally, I was flying over. But the problem was, as we were doing the rehearsal, it was already a difficult stunt because I had to land on the grass. But the guy dropped me too early, so I couldn't roll. Oh. So I literally landed on my head. Oh. And the only luck that I had was a steep terrain. So I was able to roll over. If it was flat, I could have broken my head and be paralyzed, my, broken my neck. But I did have a hairline fracture on my neck. Because oh, of that, because I felt my legs shaking, I couldn't, I couldn't get up right away, and I had a concussion for a few days. In hindsight, I would have gone to the hospital for sure. But the only reason I found that out, I lost strength on uh, one of my sides because the nerve was kind of messed up a bit. So it took me a lot of Hawaiian massage and chiropractic work, and eventually everything went back to normal. But like I said, in hindsight, if I do stunts again. I'll have my say. If somebody tells you to do something crazy, I say, I'm not doing this. I'm not Jackie Chang. I'm not Tom Cruise. They can break themselves doing the things. You know, I'm not going to go that far. Or at least they get the pay level for it. (laughs) But even then, you know. That's insane. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, as we're kind of wrapping up here, you've seen and done so much Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's grown so much. You and your brother's a major, major part of that legacy what do you see as the future of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and the growth and where do you see this going? It's never going to stop. Okay, like I have an association here with the hundreds of schools. We just have a Machado Brothers camp, which we're bringing again next year. You know, four of my brothers already confirmed, you know, Roger, Hegan, and John. I have some training camp for my affiliates in October. Things are happening ongoing. And I think here the main thing is with diffusion and expansion, it also comes the concern for keeping the quality. I think, you know, nowadays jiu-jitsu has to structure itself. For instance, if you're going to really aspire to be successful, whether as a competitor, 
whether as a, an instructor who runs a good school, you, you're going to have to have a certain structure and lifestyle that will accommodate to that. And that's kind of like we're doing quite well with the competition. We had some kids wiping out the AGF worlds. You know, uh, we have quite great coaches that are getting involved. But I think, like I said, structure is the key. You know what I'm saying? Because when you have too many of them, mm. what's going to make you more relevant uh, and unique and effective is to be well-structured so you can provide to whatever path people want to choose, whether it's competition, whether it is mentorship, systems to be so successful, running a school. You don't want to be in a situation where I see a lot of times go to the Pan Ams and you see a, a bunch of great champions, but their schools are not doing that great yet. You know what I'm saying? So I figure... There has to be a better formula than that because those guys deserve the success mm -hmm. on the mat in all aspects, you know, whether in competition or being successful in their own business. So that's kind of like how I look at it. I want people, if they need some direction and they don't have yet, go to machadomethod.com. There you can see an overview of some of the stuff that we do. And of course, I have my Instagram, which you already have the at Carlos Machado Jiu Jitsu, Facebook, Carlos Machado fan page. YouTube, Carlos Machado Jiu-Jitsu. So any of those, you're more than welcome to figure out. If anybody needs to reach out, uh, use my social media. I'll be more than glad. I have a full schedule throughout the year of seminars, events. A lot of people who may be interested in spending a two or three-day training camp. I have guests that I invite to my training camps. My next one is going to be in the fall, the second weekend of October. So anybody who hooks up with me or asks for that, you're more than glad to check out on that. And yeah. check out the book I wrote on quotes called Putting the Pieces Together. Lessons I wish I knew before I got my butt kicked. You know, <laughs> so it kind of has a little twist there. And there's a website that sells those called cmjjgear.com. I love that. That's absolutely amazing. Carlos, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm super honored. Thank you so much, sir. You take care, my friend. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Warrior's Edge podcast. For more great talks and interviews on all things martial arts, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ever in our area, you're welcome to come in and train with us at our academy, Olympus Grappling Arts. Until the next one, keep listening and keep training.